Thank you, Sylvia. Sylvia wrote that beautiful song 10 years ago, and I don't know what to say other than she wrote uh, an amazingly beautiful song about an amazingly beautiful book of the Bible. When she, she talked about how God <clears throat> asked Hosea to marry Gomer, he said, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty on faithfulness to the Lord. Sylvia said it in her song that while it expands, it shows us the pain that can come with adultery, it also expands our definition of adultery. The ending of that song comes from later, we see this restoration in the relationship between Hosea and Gomer. But before that, uh, in chapter 2, God uses this relationship as a model to explain how the people are committing adultery against God through their idolatry. That song and this treatment of adultery says that we are Gomer, like Sylvia said, we are the adulterers. We are cheating on God. Our relationship with God should be just as, if not more intimate than our relationship with our spouse. And betraying that relationship is just as, if not more destructive. No matter if you've experienced adultery or the brokenness that can happen to a marriage in your own life, if you are currently married or if you're not married, the seventh commandment applies to us all. So if you'll please uh, play, pray with me as we open our minds and hearts to hear God's word for us today. Father, I pray that you will guide my words and our time in the text this morning. I pray that you would reach out beyond my plans and teach us what we need to know about this commandment. In your son's name we pray, amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus 20, chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. This is the word of the Lord. So we finally got to the one commandment I'm sure you've all been waiting for. This is a, a crowd pleaser. Um, I ran into a friend of mine earlier this week, and I told him I was, I was preaching, and uh, he said, oh, I, I love it when you preach. It's really funny and exciting. I can't wait. Um, there's, <laughs> I don't think he's been tracking with the series because he didn't know what was coming up. There's, there's, there's not a lot of room for jokes this week on the topic of adultery. In fact, I, I want to start by admitting that we all come to this topic with our own experiences and perspectives. Some of you have already experienced the destruction that can come with adultery. Some of you may know the shame of committing adultery yourself. Probably all of us struggle in some way with lust and idolatry, which are absolutely connected to this topic. But even though this might be a difficult week and some of what we talk about is going to be difficult for us, I want to encourage you that this is an important topic for God, that there is good news for each of us inside the Bible's message on adultery. There is grace available. So while adultery is, uh, certainly means more than just adultery, as, we've, as we'll talk about some more, it's important to, to note that its inclusion in the Ten Commandments, God specifically addresses adultery instead of using a word that could describe more general sexual immorality. In the Bible, and I believe also in our lives, adultery exists in a special position. It carries a special pain. Adultery is unique because it requires prioritizing our own temporary happiness, our own lust, our own sexual appetite over the welfare of our family, over the intimacy with our spouse, over faithfulness to God, and over the humanity of other image bearers. And adultery is rampant. Last week, 
Derek had these really jaw-dropping numbers about America's relationship with death. Uh, This week I have one stat for us. In more than one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. In more than one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. Proverbs 6 says that a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. That destruction does not sit only with the person who commits adultery, but can also destroy the family by pursuing individual happiness. It can destroy intimacy by violating the covenant, and it can destroy humanity by objectifying others. So I'd like to talk about those three destructions this morning. First, adultery and how it can destroy the family. You know, the Catholic Church in its catechism says that adultery is viewed not only as a sin between an individual and God, but as an injustice that reverberates through society by harming its fundamental unit, the family. The destruction reverberates. We can see this in the Bible. We can see this in David's life. Uh, When he sees Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop and convinces her to sleep with him, she becomes pregnant. David tries to trick her husband, and when that doesn't work, he has Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, killed during battle. The sin reverberates through David's life. It results in the death of the child Bathsheba was carrying, the violation of David's daughter Tamar, the murder of his son Amnon, a civil war, and the death of many others, including the eventual death of his, David's son Absalom. This destruction, which started from David's pursuit of pleasure, led to the destruction of his family. One of my mentors used to say that with biblical truth, you had a choice. You could choose to learn on scholarship or by paying full tuition. So in this scenario, David paid full tuition because he had to suffer through the destruction that came from his adultery. But if we were able to learn from David's mistakes, then we might learn that lesson on scholarship. Unfortunately, I believe far too many of us have had to pay full tuition to learn about the very real consequences adultery can have on a family. Uh, I, have, I have one friend whose mom cheated on her dad and eventually left the marriage and the family. And when I, when I first met this friend of mine, she had just broken off uh, an engagement. She had been planning a wedding. It was about 10 years after her parents' marriage had fallen apart. But she started struggling with this intense anxiety that caused her to, to break it off. She was so concerned. What if she was the same as her mother? What if she wouldn't be able to control her actions? What if she caused someone else the pain that she'd seen on her father's face? What if she destroyed her own children the way she'd been destroyed? This destruction reverberates. Often family members who are cheated on begin to question their value, doubt their self-worth, struggle with rejection and betrayal. The family suffers. This is where the American God comes in this week. Each week we've been trying to pick a specific idol or American God that relates to the commandment. Um, This week's is the pursuit of happiness. Some of you might know, I went to college at William Mary, and if you do not have a loved one who went to William Mary, you might not know that it's pretty well known for attracting a lot of nerds. It's uh, not, not the most socially graced people usually attend William Mary. But so for instance, a common, a common icebreaker if you went to a freshman or you went to a party would be, who is your favorite founding father and why? So everyone you had to have like, oh. So we know a lot about the founding fathers. So this morning, a quick founding father nerd tangent. Uh, Thomas Jefferson and and most of the founding fathers were big fans of 
a guy named John Locke, who was a 17th century British philosopher. Locke wrote that ensuring life, liberty, and, and property or a state was the chief aim of government. Now, his writings were so important to the founding fathers that uh, George Mason, when he was writing the Virginia Declaration of Rights, and Jefferson and the Declaration of Independence, they are both written in 76, uh, they both borrowed heavily from him, but they both made a change. Jefferson's words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness instead of property. So this pursuit of happiness is a uniquely American ideal. That's something that America brought to the table. So it makes sense that Americans might tend to prioritize our own happiness, sometimes outside of broader concerns. In America, I believe we pursue happiness to a fault, granting it priority over important things. You know, this is a, a really common rationale that many people, including Christians, use to defend adultery and infidelity. Uh, the common story is that a man or a woman meets someone new, someone exciting, someone who either elicits new feelings or reawakens old ones, and they decide that this other person gives them more happiness than their spouse and their family. And since God loves them and desires for them to be happy, it can't actually be wrong. But, but here's the thing. Where America pursues happiness, God pursues holiness. God pursues redemption. God pursues people. God cares more about other things than he cares about our individual happiness. God cares more about our promises and our covenant than our happiness. He cares more about the welfare of our families than our happiness. He cares more about love and intimacy then he cares about our happiness. And he cares more about the humanity and the dignity of everyone created in his image than he cares about our individual happiness. When we pursue our happiness outside of God's guidelines, we violate the boundaries of his covenant. Some of y'all uh, might be new to church, you might be trying us out, um, or you might be wary of today's sermon for a different reason. Uh, Christianity, I think, gets a, a bad rap for having a repressive sexual ethic that seems overly concerned with, with who, can have, who can sleep with whom. But I would argue that it's not always boundaries which can have a destructive effect on intimacy. It's often a lack of boundaries. And that brings us to, to my second point tonight, how adultery can destroy intimacy by violating the covenant. Because the Bible is not afraid to talk about intimacy or sex. Uh, in fact, it talks a lot about how intimacy is a good thing and should bring pleasure and happiness. But intimacy is not primarily about our happiness. The Bible doesn't want you to use sex to pursue happiness, but wants you to find happiness within the boundaries of sex. When Derek and I were working, uh, first preparing the sermon series, I listened to some Tim Keller sermons on the Ten Commandments. And one of his big points was that while the commandments are always expressed in these prohibitions, don't do this, don't do that, the Bible also always argues for a positive compliment. So never murder also means always be loving. Never steal means always be generous. For the seventh commandment, uh, have no adultery, Keller's positive compliment was have great sex. Good. good Presbyterian. Um, so because God, because God wants us to have this great intimacy within the proper boundaries, the boundaries of marriage are intended to help marriages grow in all forms of love, in romance, in intimacy, in vulnerability, commitment, partnership, trust, 
and all of these are destroyed by adultery. Biblical sex is this amazing act of bringing two people together, consecrating the covenant and communicating a deep commitment to the other person. Because sex is all about intimacy and vulnerability, and you cannot truly have intimacy or vulnerability without commitment. C.S. Lewis wrote that the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds of unions, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. So when we engage in intimacy outside of marriage, we are working against the very purpose of intimacy. This is why boundaries are so important. Uh, when I do premarital counseling, I like to explain that the, the Christian prohibition regarding uh, premarital sex is not only in place because God designed intimacy for, within the marriage covenant, but it's also there for their own benefit. A, a friend of mine used to say that when God says, don't do blank, he's really saying, don't hurt yourself. And so I explained that by waiting to have sex until marriage, you're also practicing that same self-control that will help you not pursue sex outside of marriage. By rejecting the temptation of pornography, you're also bracing yourself for rejecting the temptation of another person. There's a, a wonderful old hymn which, uh, called Love Constraining to Obedience, which has a verse that says, to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now I feel its power within. I feel I hate it too. We need to find intimacy within God's design, and that requires learning to constrain ourselves to obedience. We talked about how pursuing intimacy outside God's boundaries can lead to destruction. The same is true. Uh, that same pursuit can destroy others through objectification. The third destruction is how adultery can destroy humanity by objectifying others. Earlier, when we were talking about Sylvia's song, we talked about how in Hosea, adultery uh, is expanded to include idolatry. And really in the whole Old Testament, they're almost synonyms where adultery and idolatry. Uh, we also see an expansion of adultery in the New Testament. For the past couple of weeks, uh, I think both Ed and Derek have talked about the relationship between the, the first tablet and the second table. Or first table, sorry, first tablet and second tablet, or first table and second table. You can use them either way. But the first tablet uh, consists of the first four commandments and deals primarily with our relationship with God, while the second tablet has the next six commandments and deals with our relationship with each other. In Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, which of the Ten Commandments are the greatest of these? Jesus answers by distilling the two tablets down the two commandments. He says, first, love your Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And second, love your neighbor as yourself. Last week, Derek was talking about how that when we perpetrate violence against others, we are dehumanizing them, rejecting the image of God they were created in. Dehumanizing people created in the image of God means that we're not treating them as our neighbors, but as objects to use in pursuit of our own self-interest. And for me, that's what the whole second table is about. When we are not treating, we are not loving our neighbors as ourselves, it's because we're dehumanizing them or objectifying them. We dehumanize or objectify others when we view them as a source for our happiness. We lessen their value in pursuit of our own self-interest. One of the ways we often do this is lust. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, 
gouge it out, and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. I think we often treat lust as a normal thing that might not be wrong on its own. We think of it as a kind of gateway drug that can lead to the bad stuff, that can lead to these actions. We might look at David and Bathsheba and say, David's lust caused him to act. But what Jesus says here is that David's primal instinct on the rooftop, he was committing adultery in his heart before the action ever took place. Our tendency to objectify others, to ignore their status as image bearers is a serious offense. Jesus advises us to gouge out our eyes or cut off our hands to keep ourselves from lust. What does this look like for us? I hope, it's, I hope it's not literally gouging out your eyes and chopping off hands, but maybe it is putting some constraints on what you read, what you watch, what you look at online. While I was working on this sermon, Ed said something that really stuck with me. Every decision you make cements your difficulty in keeping this commandment. This is a journey that requires many small steps. I think we are all touched by adultery, both as victims and perpetrators. Now that we've seen the repercussions and our own guilt, how we are all, in fact, adulterers in the eyes of God, where is the hope, where is the good news? And from Gomer's song, um, who is calling our name? In Jesus, there is hope in the midst of destruction. Uh, Here's the real big difference to me between our marriage covenant with God and the marriage covenant between husbands and wives. God is the always faithful spouse. In the midst of our betrayal, adultery, lust, and idolatry, God remains steadfast. In Hosea, where we see reconciliation, when Sylvia sang that how Gomer knew mercy when he called her name. I believe you can read the entire Bible as God's people continuously forgetting who God is and what he had done, making idols doing what was right in their own eyes, only to be rescued and redeemed again and again by God. God is the always faithful and the always forgiving spouse. No matter the level of destruction, God offers a path toward redemption. This morning, if you are the victim of adultery and you are struggling with feelings of betrayal, rejection, self-worth, God can meet you there. He knows what you are going through and knows that you are one of his beloved children created in his image with immense value. This is one of the beautiful things to me about the parish model, its ability to help this church act as a community that provides grace and love to those who are feeling the effects of this kind of destruction. This morning, if you are someone who has committed adultery and made your loved ones suffer, God can meet you there. He redeemed Gomer, he redeemed David, and he sent his son to die to redeem you. If you are struggling with lust, God can meet you there. He can provide the power and the holiness that you lack, if only you will let him. Or if you are struggling with idolatry, God can meet you there. He's dealt with it since the fall and provided his son to account for our misplaced priorities and betrayal. So how do we apply this to our lives? We've talked about this need to prioritize our commitment to God and our community, our spouse, our family. We talked about the need for boundaries on our intimacy and protections for our lust. 
So this is what I would like to charge you to do. Uh, have open and honest conversations this week or moving forward. If you're married, you can have a conversation with your spouse about how to prioritize and what boundaries might be helpful or necessary for you. But I'm charging all of us, married or unmarried, to find one or two friends to talk with about this transparently. And here's what I would like us to talk about. Uh, first, are we finding our contentment in God or are we pursuing individual happiness? That's a hard one. Uh, two, are we, are we enjoying intimacy within God's design or are we struggling with those boundaries and making mistakes? And then three, what are the dangerous spots for us dealing with lust and the objectification of others? How can we keep each other accountable? Uh, it might feel really strange to have these conversations. It might feel uh, awkward to initiate and ask your friend if, if they want to meet and talk with you about adultery. Um, but I do want to encourage you to actually think about this and come up with a plan and, and, and build, use these relationships in this community to help. I believe that uh, adultery, lust, and idolatry prey on us in times of weakness so we can use community as a strength. Affairs don't start off in bedrooms, they start off in secret conversations. And I really believe that honest, spirit-filled, grace-based, proactive and supportive community can be a part of the answer. Uh, a lot of you probably know uh, my friend Becca. She's our communications director here. I shouldn't have mentioned Becca in a sermon on adultery. It's not that related to that. But sorry, that was, that was a bad name drop. Anyway, transition, my apologies. Becca is a big fan of Wendell Berry. She named her dog after Wendell Berry. And she gave me this amazing uh, quote from one of his essays from his book, uh, Sex, Economy, Freedom, and Community. And I was going to read this quote for us this morning. Lovers must not, like usurers, live for themselves alone. They must finally turn from their gaze at one another back toward the community. If they had only themselves to consider, lovers would not need to marry but they must think of others and of other things. They say their vows to the community as much as to one another, and the community gathers around them to hear and to wish them well on their behalf and its own. It gathers around them because it understands how necessary, how joyful, and how fearful this joining is. These lovers, pledging themselves to one another until death, are giving themselves away, and they are joined by this as no law or contract could join them. Lovers then die into their union with one another as a soul dies into its union with God. And so here at the very heart of community life, we find not something to sell as in the public market, but this momentous giving. If the community cannot protect this giving, it can protect nothing. I believe the community can help protect this giving. God knows that avoiding this American God of the pursuit of happiness is difficult. And I believe that's why he doesn't ask us to do it alone. It's one of the reasons that he sent his son to die for us. It's one of the reasons that he sent his spirit to dwell within us. And it's one of the reasons that he designed us to live in community. Please pray with me. Father, we confess that we often prioritize our own happiness, that we desire intimacy outside of our marriages, that we objectify others, who are created in your image and that we ignore the destruction of adultery all around us. Please help us to, to live in your word, your truth in this community that you designed for us. Help us to find our satisfaction, not in others, but in you.
please be the strength we need to stay faithful not only to our spouses, but to you. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.